church family. Good to see you today. I want to welcome all those who are joining us here in person and all of you folks who are online. And I hope, and I mean this from my heart, that you'll stay till the end. All right? If you got a Bible with you today, I want you to grab it. I want to hear your pages turning to the book of Romans and the 12th chapter. If you um, are a first-time guest with us this morning, either in person or online, I want you to know what a joy it is to welcome you into our service. We always love uh, to welcome first-time guests, and we hope that after the service is over, you'll go right out these doors, and to the right, there's a special room called the Guest Connection Room, where some wonderful people would just like to say hello to you. We're not going to try to get anything from you. We just want to say hello to you and give you a gift, and thank you for being here, answer any questions you might have. If you're a first-time guest also, let me just share with you that what we're doing right now is we're going uh, through the book of Romans in a message series called Unashamed, but we're not going through the book of Romans verse by verse. We're going through the book of Romans chapter by chapter. There's 16 chapters in the book of Romans. That means each chapter we're trying to hone in on some major theme or in some cases a variety of major themes that are found there from the Apostle Paul in each chapter. And as we turn our attention this weekend to Romans chapter 12, I've got to tell you that the first thing we have to notice is a transition of sorts. And here's what I mean by that. You can say, this is a broad but an accurate statement, you can say that in the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul focuses his, his attention on what God does for us, what God does for his people, what God did for the people of Israel, what God does for people like you and me today. But when you get to Romans chapter 12, Paul transitions to what God expects from us, to what God expects from his people. And he talks about how as believers, we need to begin to live out our faith every single day in the real world. And while the main emphasis related to this life that God expects from us in Romans chapter 12 is found as Paul talks about spiritual gifts in verses three through eight, and then in verses nine through 21 as he talks about what it looks like for people like you and me to live a genuine life of love, what we're gonna spend our time talking about in Romans chapter 12 is just the first two verses. Because in those two verses, and they're going to be so familiar to many of you, we see Paul making it clear that there are two things required of everyone who claims to be a follower of Christ. Two things required of everyone who claims to be a Christian. And the reason why we're focusing on these two verses is if you don't have the evidence of those two things in your life, then you're probably not going to be pursuing the other things that Paul writes about in Romans 12. You're probably not going to be pursuing uh, your spiritual gifts so that you can use your gift to minister to the body of Christ. And you're probably not going to get up every day thinking about what it looks like to live out a life of love as you go through the daily events of your life. And so... We're going to spend our time focused on those two verses. So if you've got your Bible open to Romans chapter 12 this morning and you're able, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of the Scripture. Again, we do this every week. If you're a guest, we do this every week. We make the public reading of Scripture a part of our service. And because we love and respect and revere the Word of God, we stand when we read it. Let me just share it with you from my New International Version Bible today. Paul writes and says, Therefore... I urge you, brothers, notice he says, therefore. See, I told you there's a transition of sorts that happens in Romans chapter 12, transitioning from what God has done for us to what God expects from us. Therefore, 
I urge you, brother, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. Everyone say transformed. Transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. All right, there it is. You can be seated. We always, always ask that God would bless the reading and the hearing of his word. We're gonna dive right into this message. I told you last week when we opened our Bibles to Romans chapter 11 that I wasn't gonna share a sermon with you. We're gonna have a big old Bible study. And I felt like that worked out pretty well. So we're gonna do it again today. We're gonna have a big old Bible study, all of us together and everybody joining us online. And it's gonna be based on two verses from Romans chapter 12, verses one and two. If you're someone who likes to take notes when you're involved in a Bible study, then find somewhere to write down a number one, and next to that number one, I want you to write down a single word, and that word is submission. That's the first thing that God requires from us as we study Romans chapter 12. He begins by saying, therefore I urge you brothers in view of God's mercy, here it is, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, and then he says this is your spiritual act of worship. Now, if you've been in church for any amount of time, those words are familiar to you, just like the words of Romans chapter 12 and verse 2 are probably familiar to you as well. And there's a good and a bad to that. The good is obvious. You're familiar with some of the most powerful and convicting words that the Apostle Paul ever wrote. The flip side of that is the bad. And like so many other parts of the Bible, we can become so familiar with it, so familiar with the words that they lose their power or their emphasis or their impact on us in our lives. So before I say another word in this big old Bible study that we're involved in together this morning, I just want to pause and ask everyone listening in person and online an important question. I want you to be genuinely conscientious and sincere and honest as you answer this in your heart and in your mind. When was the last time that you were genuinely convicted? You felt, you, you felt genuinely convicted by the truth of God's word. I mean, you, you heard it. It was expounded to you, and it just captured your heart, broke your heart, convicted your heart in a compelling way that led to some kind of change. And I ask that because if you can't think of a time, quite frankly, when the truth of God convicted you in a way that led to some kind of change, that led to some level of repentance or some level of recommitment, then maybe your heart is not exactly where it needs to be with regard to your relationship with Christ. These are powerful, powerful words that Paul shares with us in Romans chapter 12, verses one and two, and they're not difficult to understand. In a very real way, the apostle Paul is just saying to us in different words, the exact same thing that Jesus said when he walked the face of the earth. And I'll use Luke chapter nine, verses 23 and 24 as an example, because in those verses, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. But sadly, for some reason, this is a fundamental, fundamental biblical truth that seems in many ways to be lost in modern Christianity where so many people today are looking for what they can get from God rather than what they can give to God, for what they can get from Jesus rather than what they can give to Jesus. 
I'll illustrate that with a story I read this last week. Pastor was sharing a story he had with a woman in his church who had been attending for a while, but had been having a very difficult time actually living out the reality of the Christian life. She said she had been seeking more of God and she had even been trying different spiritual experiences. For example, she said, for a while I went to a charismatic church. Now that word might not mean anything to you, but a charismatic church is just a church that has a different view of the gifts of the Holy Spirit and the operation of the gifts of the Holy Spirit in the world today than, than some churches do. And she said, I went to a charismatic church for a while and I tried speaking in tongues. And then she said, I even tried to be slain in the spirit. That's another term from the charismatic world. She said, I'm trying to get all I can from God. To which the pastor replied, with all due respect, that's the exact opposite of what you should be doing. Your Christian life is not dependent on what you get from him is dependent on what you give to him. And that's really more than anything else what you see in Romans chapter 12 and verse one. This verse that we're using to talk about the need and the importance of submission, Paul says, therefore, I urge you brothers in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, This is your spiritual act of worship. Now in our Bible study today, if I were gonna highlight just one part of this verse for emphasis, it would be Paul saying that believers are to offer their bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Now this is a letter the apostle Paul wrote to a church in Rome. And so when that letter was delivered to Rome, Paul's readers, especially in particular, the Jewish converts in Rome would have been very familiar with what Paul was talking about when he started to write about sacrifices. They would have been familiar with the language of sacrifices because they would have been familiar with the sacrificial system of the Old Testament law. I don't have time to explain that to someone who doesn't necessarily understand it, but if you don't necessarily understand it, that's okay. The sacrifice that Paul is talking about here is very different from that kind of sacrifice. They would have been familiar with the sacrifice where a priest would offer some kind of an animal on a sacrificial altar as an atonement to God for sin. But there's one significant difference that you have to notice from that and what Paul is writing about in Romans chapter 12 and verse one, right from the beginning. That would be this, in the Old Testament system, according to the Old Testament law, the old covenant, when a priest would offer a sacrifice for sin, the sacrifice would be an animal that was dead. It had already been slain. But Paul's not calling for dead sacrifices here. Think about the words of Romans 12, one again. He says that we are to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing sacrifices. To God. A dead sacrifice was the pattern of the Old Testament, it was a pattern of the Old Covenant, but that system is gone. That system ended when Jesus died on the cross as a once for all sacrifice for all time. I'm glad somebody said amen to that because it kept me from saying, somebody say amen to that. Look at these words on the screen that remind us of that. In Romans chapter six and verse 10, the apostle Paul writes and says, the death he died, talking about Jesus, he died to sin. Notice this, once for all. You go to Hebrews chapter seven and verse 27, and the Hebrew writer says, he, talking about Jesus, sacrificed for their sins. Notice it, once for all when he offered himself. That phrase once for all is so significant for all of us. 
There's no sacrifice that needs to be made for sin any longer. Jesus has made the ultimate once for all sacrifice for all of us. When he died in our place on the cross, paid the penalty for our sin and satisfied God's need for justice with regard to sin. Now what we are called to do is to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. You and me, not a lamb, not a goat, not any kind of animal, you and me, living sacrifices. And so what Paul is saying, and this is how we should literally understand it, we need to view our lives as being placed literally on the altar before God as an offering. And Paul says, this is your spiritual act of worship. That's how Romans chapter 12 and verse one ends in my New International Version Bible. I'm gonna put some versions of the ending of Romans 12, one on the screen in more modern translations where my NIV Bible says, this is your spiritual act of worship. The easy to read version says, this is the most sensible way to serve God. The Good News Translation says, this is the true worship you should offer. And the Living Bible, which is not a translation as much as it is a paraphrase, says, when you think of what he has done for you, is that too much to ask? Good question. When we think about what Jesus did for us when he gave his life physically, literally, as a sacrifice for our sin so that we could have the forgiveness of sin, is it too much to ask that we would offer our bodies as living sacrifices and live in a way that was holy and pleasing to God? And so Romans 12.1 gives us the foundation of our commitment to Christ. The foundation of our commitment to Christ is offering ourselves, our entire lives to God as a sacrifice, as if we were literally placing ourselves on the altar. And so what this means, friends, is the affirmation of the truth that the Christian life is not built on what you can get from God. The Christian life is built on what you give to God. And there's nothing that you and I could ever give to God that's a sacrifice for that kind of commitment, that's a sacrifice for that kind of obedience. I don't know if you're familiar with the story in 1 Samuel chapter 15 in the Old Testament about a time when God decided it was time for a nation of people known as the Amalekites to come to an end. And so what God does, and this is the time in Israel's history when they were living under the leadership of their very first king, who was King Saul, who if you know anything about the Bible, know that he was not a good king. He was a king who failed over and over and over again, primarily because of disobedience to God. But God sends the prophet Samuel to Saul and says, it's time for us to basically eradicate the Amalekites. Now, the instruction was very specific. It was don't spare anyone. Don't spare any of the people, don't spare the livestock. Now let's be real honest and together in our informal Bible study today. This is one of those passages where people who don't believe in God or who are antagonistic toward God will also often use to try to discredit any, any reality that God is a loving God or a kind God or a merciful God because let's be let's honest, let's face it, this is a harsh command. But you have to understand the context. It's not as simple as it sounds. Uh, there, there was some background here. There was an event, and it's recorded in Exodus chapter 17, where after the Israelites had been led out of Egyptian slavery, 
by Moses. You remember the story. They got to the, the edge of the uh, Red Sea, and there was no way to get across, and they looked behind them, and Pharaoh had changed his mind about letting them go, and so the army of Pharaoh was pursuing them to take them back into Egyptian slavery, and they were at a crossroads, but God, through Moses, did this incredible miracle where he parted the water of the Red Sea, and they walked across on dry ground. They got on the other side. They looked back. The water closed in on the army of Pharaoh, and they had been delivered, and so, you know, that's one of those moments is everybody's just like, okay, and then they start again, and all of a sudden, at one point after that, from behind, without any provocation, the Israelites were attacked by the Amalekites. And there was a battle that took place. Go home today. This is your homework assignment from our Bible study. Go home today and read Exodus chapter 17 because it's a great story. It's a great story of how God uh, brought victory to uh, the Israelites. But when that happened, God told Moses, he said specifically to Moses, he said that he was going to remove basically remove the Amalekites from memory. That's what he said. He was, he was done with it. Now, the time has come for that. And so he sends the prophet Samuel to Saul with instructions to destroy the Am- Am- Amalekites. Uh, don't spare anyone, not the people or the livestock. And so Saul goes to carry out the instructions, but like so many other times in Saul's life, he doesn't fully obey. He doesn't fully obey and he doesn't, He spares the life of the king. For example, he spares the lives of what he considers to be the best livestock, the best uh, lambs, goats, cows, bulls, on and on and on. Well, Samuel comes and confronts him about this, and Saul, and I'm consolidating the story here, tries to uh, justify his disobedience by saying, well, I've spared the best livestock so that we can sacrifice them as an offering to God. And this was Samuel's reply to him in 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 22. He looks right in the face of Saul and he says, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? And then he says, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed, which is a word that means to listen, but also which means to submit, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. So what was, what was God saying to Saul through the prophet Samuel in that moment? He's saying, I don't, I don't care what it is. I don't care what you bring up. I don't care what you say. There's no, sac- there's no substitute for obedience. I, I don't care how you try to rationalize the way you choose to live your life and the way you choose to obey or not obey my commands. The bottom line is there's no substitute for obedience. Let me say it like this in line with our Bible study. There's no substitute for submission. That's what he's saying. Now, I think we can be guilty of falling into the same trap sometimes in our lives because um, let's, be, let's be honest, we're, sometimes we're more like Saul than we should be and we don't obey fully, but we rationalize our behavior, good or bad, by saying, but I do this or but I do that, but I really, in my heart, I really feel this way but I always go back to those specific words. To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed, to submit is better than the fat of rams. You can't justify your lack of obedience to God by saying, yeah, but I fill in the blank. Paul says, therefore I urge you brothers in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. 
And here's another interesting thing about that verse. When Paul says to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, we need to understand that like this. He's saying offer every single part of who you are. In the original language of the New Testament, the word translated bodies here is, here is the Greek word soma. And I'll put the definition of the Greek word soma up on the screen. It means the body living in its wholeness, every single aspect of who you are. And what that means on a practical level is it means the physical part of your body, but it also means the immaterial part of your body. It includes all the things that you see. For example, you're sitting out there looking at me and you can see my face, my hair, my arms, my legs, my torso, all those kinds of things. But it also includes the things that you can't see, my feelings and my thoughts and my affections and my plans. It's all of me. It's all of you. That's what God is calling for. All of who we are on the outside, physically speaking, and all of who we are in the most intimate realities of our lives on the inside. Paul says, this is what God wants. That's in the word bodies, when he says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. And so that's our only option when it comes to having a relationship with him through our faith in Christ. And this is our spiritual act of worship. Or as I shared with you earlier, this is the most sensible way to serve God. This is the true worship we should offer. This is, this is the kind of worship we offer because somebody would say, is, is, the, is that too much to ask after all he's done for you? And one more thing before we move on to the second word. As we make this living sacrifice, Paul says we do it in view of the mercy of God. He says, therefore I urge you, Brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. So we understand we're not offering, and I'm not gonna assume anybody under, uh, just intuitively knows all this, so I'll say it. We, we understand that we're not offering our bodies as living sacrifices to God to try to pay for our sin. We're offering our bodies as living sacrifices to God because Jesus has already paid for our sin by the mercy and the grace of God. And we understand that every single day of our lives, we get up knowing and understanding and believing and being thankful for that every single day of our lives. And so we do this, we, we offer our, we get, we put our bodies on the altar of sacrifice as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God because of the mercy of God that he's poured into our lives every single day. I wonder if we, I wonder if we ever really genuinely think about all the different levels of mercy that God pours into our lives I found this verse this week, and I don't know if I ever read it before. Maybe I'd read it before and I just kind of forgot about it. But in Psalm 116, verse 12, the psalmist says, how can I repay the Lord for all of his goodness to me? Read those words with me. Let me hear your voices. How can I repay the Lord for all his goodness to me? Those words, don't those words have to break us a little bit, at least on some level? When we think about all that God has done for us, I mean, our lives are filled with trials. Our lives are filled with difficulties and our lives are filled with disappointments. There's certainly been a lot of that in my life and different seasons of life. But in spite of that, which is the reality, by the way, of living in this sinful, fallen and broken world, we still think about all the goodness that God has shown to us. And so we live our lives in view 
of God's mercy. And that's why we offer our bodies as living sacrifices to God. And so the first thing that is required from God for us to live the lives that he calls us to live is this understanding of submission. And Paul crafts this this reality so clearly and so visually and so perfectly in his words when he says that we are to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which is our spiritual act of worship. But there's a second word that we have to understand too. And so if you're taking notes in our Bible study, write down a number two and next to that number two, write down the word transformation. Because in Romans 12, one and two, Paul talks about submission in verse one, and he talks about transformation in verse two. In verse two, he says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed, there it is, by the renewing of your mind, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, when you look at, Romans chapter 12 and verse two, from the perspective of transformation, you have to see that there is a negative and a positive instruction in Romans 12 and verse two. Let's start with the negative. The first part of Romans 12, two says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this word, a world rather. In order to fully understand that part of the verse, you have to understand two words. You have to understand the word conform and you have to understand the word world. The word conform in the original language of the New Testament comes from the Greek word Suskamatiso, which is a compound word that's derived from the word, or the root word rather, scheme, scheme. And what's significant about that word scheme is that if you're familiar with your, your Bible, in particular the New Testament, then you know that the New Testament talks about the way that our enemy, the devil, the way that Satan works in our life like this. He works through schemes, schemes. I'll give you an example of that real quick. We only have time for one example. When Paul's writing the letter of 2 Corinthians, he writes uh, at one point, and if you know anything about the church in Corinth, Paul wrote them, well, two letters that are recorded in the New Testament, but when you study the New Testament, you see that he actually wrote them more than two letters, but only two letters that found their way into the New Testament. This church was a mess. They were so carnal and so sinful and had so many problems. Uh, And so he was writing to them in the second letter about how dangerous it was when they withheld forgiveness from each other, okay? Now, let's be honest. The Bible, the New Testament's really clear about the importance and the instruction of forgiveness. Nobody's exempt from forgiveness, not even you. I'm not being insensitive when I say that, not knowing what, how badly you've been hurt by somebody, but I do know this, I do know this, whether it's you or me or somebody else, regardless of how badly we've been hurt by somebody, we all live under this New Testament instruction to forgive. That's the truth. You can't debate it. And you don't have a special agreement with God about that. That's what people tell me all the time about things that are difficult in their life. They say, well, I think me and God got an agreement about this. Or me and God got an understanding about this. And it's like, no, you don't. And I'm not trying to be cavalier when I say that because I know how painful life can be, but you don't. And so he's writing about how bad it is when we withhold forgiveness from someone. And as a part of that, as a part of his teaching, He talks about this spiritual danger of withholding forgiveness. And in 2 Corinthians 2.11, he says this, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his, say it with me, schemes, his schemes. And so Paul's telling us, or telling the Corinthians, and he's telling us today, this is how Satan works. He works through schemes. And in the context of 
Second Corinthians chapter two, he can work uh, or, or scheme through unforgiveness to produce animosity and bitterness and even in the context of a church, divide a church, destroy the unity of a church, endanger a church. That's just one example. And so you gotta understand that's the meaning behind the word conform. And he says, uh, that we are not to conform any longer to the power of this world. The second word you have to understand is the word world, which in the original language of the New Testament is the Greek word ion. And I love my NIV Bible here, but a better translation would have been age. Age. Age in the sense of this present sinful age. It's not a reference just for a time like the day in which Paul was writing the book of Romans, uh, like that was a particularly sinful age. It's a reference to the ever-present reality that we live in a sinful age in this world because it's under the domination of our enemy, the devil, of Satan. Not that Satan has control of the world, but he dominates what we would call a world system, a system that's present in the world that is anti-God. And if you don't understand that, there's a system like that that's operating in the world today, then you've got your head buried in the sand and you need to wake up. It's all around us every single day. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter four and verse four, this kind of gives some insight to what I'm talking about. In 2 Corinthians four and verse three, he says, the God, notice this, little g, right? We're not talking about the sovereign God, little g God. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel. This is Satan and the way he works in this world system and dominates this world in so many horrible ways through this world system that he's in control of. And so when you put all this together, this understanding of the word conform and this understanding of the word world, when Paul writes and says, do not conform any longer to the power of this world, then Paul is saying, do not let the age you live in that's under the control of Satan scheme you into its way of thinking and behavior. You gotta be different. This is where the transformation comes in. I, I like the way this, um, uh, this verse is rendered in the J.B. Phillips translation of the New Testament. He says it like this, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. We've gotta be really diligent and careful about that. Basically, if we wanted to summarize it, and you could write this in the margin of your Bible next to Romans chapter 12 and verse two, you could just write down something like this. Watch out for worldliness or avoid worldliness. And while I don't have a lot of time to talk about uh, worldliness, there's one thing about worldliness we have to understand. Worldliness is not defined by behavior as much as it's defined by the way that we think. So when I was a kid growing up in church, I had a youth minister who used to say, I don't drink, smoke, cuss, or chew, and I don't go out with girls who do. <laughs> you know, I was just a kid, that sounded good to me. Rules to live by. I don't drink, smoke, cuss, or chew, and I don't go out with girls who do. Now, the reason why I say that is because a lot of people, a lot of Christians want to define worldliness like that. It's the things that you do. If you drink, smoke, cuss, or chew, and you go out with girls who do, you're living a worldly life. Pretty simple. But worldliness is a state of mind. It's a mindset. It's a way of thinking. It's not defined by what we do. That's not to dismiss the bad things that we can do. But primarily, worldliness is not defined by actions. It's defined by the way we think. And the clearest evidence of that is found 
in the positive instruction in Romans chapter 12 and verse two. Remember I told you there's a negative thing Paul says and there's a positive thing he says. And the positive thing is this. Rather than, uh, rather than making the mistake of conforming to the pattern of this world, that's the negative thing to avoid. He goes on to say, but be transformed by the renewing of your what? Your mind. And he says the result of that is then you'll be able to test and improve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. It's in our mind where the transformation takes place. There's, and there's only one way that you can renew your mind. And, and listen, if you're a parent today and your children are still living at home under your authority and your leadership, I want you to listen to me really carefully. The only way you or your children can renew their minds and be transformed as a result is by filling their mind, filling your mind with the truth of God's word over and over and over again. And so the question for all of us today when it comes to this idea of transformation, which is the second thing that's required from all of us, submission number one, transformation number two, the only way that we can actually experience this transformation is by filling our minds with the word of God. So we have to stop and ask ourselves, what am I allowing into my mind? We have to ask ourselves, what are my children allowing into their minds? What am I allowing my children to fill their minds with? And this is so critical. And the Bible has so much to say about this. We go all the way back to the book of Psalms. Psalm 119, verse 11, where the psalmist writes and says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And I hope that you know, and if you don't, then listen to me close. Every time you read the word heart in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, it's not a reference to our emotions, it's a reference to the mind. The heart is a reference to the mind. And so when the psalmist says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you, he's saying, I've hidden my word in your mind. You think about Proverbs chapter four and verse 23, which is such a great verse where the proverb writer says, above all else, guard your heart. What's he saying? Above all else, guard your mind. Why? Because it is the wellspring of life, or in other words, everything flows from the mind. So what are we allowing into our minds? What are we allowing into the minds of our children? This has everything to do with the reality of transformation in our lives. And so when Paul wrote his New Testament letters, he spent so much time emphasizing the importance of filling your mind with the word of God. Colossians chapter one and verse 28 says, we, pro we proclaim him, Jesus, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Why? So that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. So the transformation will happen. If I turn in my Bible to Colossians chapter three right now, you don't have to do that. Uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Okay, I gotta get there. Hang on. I don't have tabs in my Bible. Tabs is just what cheaters used in Bible quizzes when I was in church camp. <laughs> Chapter three has the heading, Rules for Holy Living. Listen to what Paul writes. He says, since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts, what's his heart, what's he talking about? Mind on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. 
When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. And then he says, put to death, therefore, here's the transformation, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. This new self is being renewed in what? In knowledge, because we fill our minds with the truth of God's word. And I'm in the red, so I gotta move on. This is transformation, friends. This is how transformation takes place. And so, I mean, in your Bible somewhere, in Romans chapter 12, you just need, by verses one and two, you just need to write down these two words. You need to write down the word submission and you need to write down the word transformation because that's what Paul's talking about and that's what he's saying is required from you and me. I hope more than anything else, the exposition of these two verses gives us an emphasis on this truth that there's only one level of commitment that is acceptable to God and it's a commitment that is absolute and complete in every part of our lives because that's the kind of commitment that leads to transformation. Jesus said it like this. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. Paul says it like this. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And while modern American Christianity has oftentimes reduced that call to something that feels more comfortable to us or less threatening to us or enough to get by with, God has not changed his standard. His level of sacrifice and commitment has not been changed because God is looking for transformation and the will of God for your life and mine is fundamentally and foundationally the same Paul calls it good, God's good, pleasing, and perfect will in our text. But we only experience the reality of that when we are willing to submit and experience transformation. And that only happens when we come to a place where we are willing to put our whole body, every aspect of our life on the altar as a sacrifice to God that's holy and pleasing. And so let me just ask you this question and we'll close. The band can come and we'll have our last song. Let me just ask you this question. Really straightforward, simple, maybe difficult to answer. But when you look at your life and your faith and your Christianity, is it defined by, more by what you're looking to get from God or what you're willing to give to God? 